Hey guys, bit of a quick thing since we had a little bit of a technical glitch for the Voyager episode I just recorded about an hour ago that you just watched last Tuesday. Uh, we actually have the monitor on right now so I can monitor it and make sure that everything's going smoothly. And if everything continues to go smoothly, I'm pretty sure I fixed the issue, but I'd like to just keep track. So I'm trying to... L I have a bunch of black on my screen to reduce the glare in my glasses. I hope you can forgive me for this. Uh, normally I try to be, appear a little more professional in this, but whatever. So... <clears throat> um. One of the things that I like about this episode is that it's a heavily political episode. And one of the things I don't like about this episode is I don't know what to talk about when it comes to it. I, I keep having this issue with Babylon 5. I have so few notes. I have so little to talk about of substance. Um, I hope you guys are, 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 are accepting of this, you know, these 20-minute, these 30-minute, 15-minute episodes because, you know, I, I don't want to just blabber on about nothing, but I want to actually, you know, I, I don't have much else of substance to talk about. So, sorry guys. Good episode. I like this episode a lot. This is the first episode where we see Naroon. I don't mind saying he's going to be another regular character similar to Bester. Uh, I don't mean like he's like Bester. I mean he's a recurring character. Uh, if I was to use a different parallel, I would call him similar to Reginald Barkley over in TNG, or Q over in TNG. Um... So one thing I noticed that's interesting in this episode is despite the vitriol that Ivanova still obviously has for the Psychor, she has reached nodding level with Talia. It's a little touch, but it actually does show something. Now, you might think I'm saying that jokingly, like, oh, she's willing to actually nod at someone um, rather than, you know, yell and angry, be angry at them. But I'm not kidding when I say that. That is a step forward for her. Remember how she reacted to Jeffrey Combs' character, Gray? Uh, how many episodes did that go? Uh, not many. Looks like that was last week. Last week's episode, sorry. I've always got my calendar right there. So, just last week, she was just violently angry, yelling and, and trying not to even interact with him. And with Tully, she's at the point where when Tully sits down near her, she's willing to just do that kind of nod of acknowledgement. That may not sound like much, but for Ivanova and her severe hatred of Psychor, that is a step, and that is a sign of respect and significance. Which is funny, because signs of respect is basically all that this episode is about. Although, that brings up another question. The Gunports issue... This isn't really spoiling, but the Gunports thing is going to come up again in the future. Why is this not a thing that's known? Why is there no one on the bridge crew who knows what a, a Mimbari warship having their Gunports open means, especially when that the people on the bridge include Sinclair, who fought in the war, and uh, Garibaldi, who makes it his business to know everything that's going on, who also even references the accident about the Gunports thing in this episode. Why does nobody know what the Gunports thing means? I feel like that was a little bit of artificially generated drama. I get why they did it. It's the first point at which the audience is introduced to the Gunports thing. But it shouldn't be the first point to the characters. It's, this is one of the very few times when I look at Babylon 5 and I say, that's badly written. It, that, that should have been done elsewise. They could have had, you know, someone on the crew uh, who doesn't know, you know, like the person on the scanning officer. Oh my god, their gun ports are open, what are we going to do? And have Garibaldi or Sinclair be like, no, it's okay, explain, explain, explain. That would have been a better way to construct that rather than having them be like, oh my gosh. Because that doesn't work that way. Anyways, um, so it is interesting to me to see the severe negativity I find that acceptable. Uh, I find that logical. It is. It has either been 
a full 10 years or only 10 years, depending on how you look at it, since the war. A brutal, destructive, horrifying war which Earth almost didn't survive. Excuse me. Humanity almost didn't survive. That was nearly the extinction of our race during that war. So it's kind of logical for there still to be a great deal of lingering uh, resentment, hatred, bitterness, etc. towards the Membari in general, but especially towards the warrior caste, and especially, especially towards a general who fought on the line. Who led on the line, I should say, but whatever, you get the point. Um, that is, uh, yeah, that's pretty significant. So even though it's been 10 years, I don't really blame Sinclair or anybody else for that matter for still harboring those things, as long as they do them acceptably, which brings me to a quote I'd love to share with you, if you'll forgive me, because I don't have David Warner's voice. If there is to be a brand new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. That quote was just all over my mind in this episode. A lot of this episode is about that exact idea, that exact concept, being willing to accept the past, not let go of it, not ignore it, but accept it and try to move on from it, try to reach the next stage of things. Uh, it's a little bit pat at the end when Sinclair mentions how, you know, maybe it's the tough fighting and yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, the sentiment rings true. And he does say something that Mimbari will take very seriously. The idea that he is praising his enemy. There is no greater praise for a warrior than praise from his enemy. And that's a very common thought in basically every culture. So him being willing to uh, give that and grant that to him, Naroon's response to that is appropriate. You know, Naroon comes there humbly, you know, I'm going to apologize, what I did was unread, blah, blah, blah. But then Sinclair says that, and Naroon is visibly... He's just visibly shocked by that and gives a much more perfunctory, much more, oh my God, you know, kind of a bow because he wasn't ready for that, that outstretched hand in return. He was there to apologize because he was ordered to and he follows orders because he's a good soldier. So that was good. I like that. I know that's like the last scene of the movie or episode, excuse me. Anyways, um, so I'm going to pause for a moment to talk about the side child plot. It's good that they tied it into the primary plot of the politics and the incident and yada, yada, yada. Also, this is another good example of good writing, other than the one thing I mentioned. They weave a lot of history into this episode. We get a lot of insight into the Membari. This is a logical next step. Not too long ago, we learned that there are two casts for the Membari. That is a recent development. And now we are seeing those two casts and how, despite the Membari being unified as a whole, at least we assume, there's a great deal of contention between those two casts. And again, it's portrayed as if there's just the two, although I've already told you there's the worker cast as well. But the point being, these two casts uh, are obviously not completely unified, not just politically or, or, or as a government, but I mean ideologically. These two groups of people simply disagree with each other. This entire incident happened because the military caste disavowed the religious caste's wishes, and the religious caste enforced their wishes on the military caste, on the warrior caste. That's literally what happened. That This incident, which nearly boiled over into a new war with Earth, happened as a result of that. Oh, by the way, another very Mimbari thing. The Mimbari were willing to go to war even knowing it was not Earth's fault, even knowing it was an accident. I will say I don't think the Mimbari as a whole were willing to do that. But the fact that there were still members of the leadership, and Naroon is not exactly a low-ranking officer, who were willing to think in that direction, it says a lot. Um, 
regardless. Uh, so there's a lot of, of backstory, a lot of setting woven into this. The, uh, the, the, the other thing that's interesting is the concept of Mimbari politics, which I just touched on a little bit. You notice I've already stopped talking about the Psy Girl because there's really not much to talk about there. It's a fairly typical plot. There's the, you know, here's your options. Uh, Psychor, you know, one of the alien races, or, you know, you, you die horribly, basically. Um, not literally, but you know what I mean. Uh, and, and they use that, though, for the same effect, which is why I'm, I'm trying to weave my own narrative together here. Both the Psy Girl and the Mimbari plot, while they have uh, some plot to them, are mostly setting building. This is learning about the Mimbari. This is learning about Narun, the individual. This is learning about Delenn, the individual. This is learning about how Psychor operates a little bit. This is learning a little bit into the Narn regime. This is the first time it's really flat out stated that the Narn do not have telepaths amongst their species, and they want them. Uh, this has been hinted at before, especially when Lita Alexander was offered a, a fair sum for genetic material from her in order to experiment on. That was way back. It's even referenced in this episode. But way back. It's only, I, I feel like I'm so far into the series, but I'm, I'm still in season one. Anyways. Um, so, again, it's, it's, it's insight into the Narn and their lack of telepaths, which will be relevant later. It's insight into the, uh, the fact that Earth is not the only organization which is not unified back at home. The Membari are not fully unified either. That's that's uh, going to become relevant in the future. Uh, it's an insight into Membari politics. I'm going to save that discussion for a minute, but that's going to be relevant in the future. It's an insight into the reality of how awakening as a psi child works, and a little bit of an in insight into the the psychokinetic thing, or excuse me, psychotelepathic. Uh, I guess that would be psychopathic? That doesn't sound right. Anyways, thing in general of how it works, uh, the mind, uh, the wall thing, and looking into another one's mind. One thing I really, really liked, too, that they establish... Because I like this because it makes perfect sense. The mind of a human does not fully equate to a mind with an alien. So if a human mind tries to interact with an alien mind, it just doesn't work right. I like that a lot, actually, because that makes perfect sense. I've been one of those people who has argued that if you were somehow, like, if, if you could Q-snap your way into another person's mind, your sentience into their physical brain and interactions, you wouldn't be able to function properly because you, the signals you're used to sending are not the signals they're used to, their body, their mind, their, their nerve paths are used to receiving. It's not one-to-one. -one. Um, I don't have proof of that. It, it, not really. It's just something I've theorized for many years. But the idea of that being true across alien species just makes 50,000 times more sense. The fact that they literally have different thought processes, so it's completely different to interpret. And they mention training that's necessary to be able to understand alien minds. Again, great setting building. But that's really all this episode is. This is, episode is pure setting building. There is technically a threat of the week, but it's never really treated as if it's a serious threat. The only time it ever really comes into the threat territory is when Narun physically attacks Sinclair, thinking that he might have been held there. By the way, I want to give props again to Garibaldi, because Narun's like, there's one place they would never look, think to look. And Garibaldi says, actually, I totally looked here. That is so Garibaldi. I just wanted to share that. Um, uh, one of the other things, too, that's brought up, and again, this is a little bit more setting building, is they discuss the down below thing once again, only a little bit. Uh, I've talked about the down below thing before. I don't want to really get too much into that again because that was in the controversy box. We don't have a controversy box today. But uh, it, it is once again mentioned that when you're down there, you steal or you, or you thug. Those are basically your options. 
It's that or die, I suppose. So those are your three options. Thug, steal, die. Take your pick. And the fact that there is that level and severity of an underclass really kind of emphasizes the fact that this is not Star Trek. This is not some Puritan future. This is not some place where they have solved resources or otherwise things like that. This is a, a normal society, which I think is why some people like it so much more, even though that it carries so many more problems with it, uh, because it is more believable. I'm not going to call it realistic, but definitely believable. Um, I want to just take an aside to say that I really didn't like the actress who played Psychic Girl. I can't even think of her name. I'm sorry, forgive me, but I really did not like her performance. It was, the, she constantly was speaking like as, it, her lines were written as if it was, she was speaking in a degree of slang to try and emphasize that she's a teenager, but the performance was terrible. So it sounded like an adult trying to act like a teenager, except doing it really badly. It was just, it was just bad all around. So that that's another reason I don't have too much to talk about on it. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is... Uh, they 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 mention the fact that the Membari uh, again this is more setting building they mention the incident that instigated the Membari Earth War and all they say is that was a tragic accident that's all they say and I mention that because ignoring the fact that it's significant for my earlier point I find myself wondering how the Membari felt knowing it was a tragic accident and more to the point if they cared. The Mimbari are weird as a species to really discuss because on the one hand, they tend to be some of the most uh, benevolent of the species that we've encountered. And yet on the other hand, they are very austere. They do not allow any variance in certain things. There are certain lines where if that line is crossed, they go to the all the way to the extreme, all the way to the furthest extent. They crank it up to 11 regularly. But they do so in like a very orderly fashion. It's a fascinating culture to discuss. But my point is, I imagine the Mimbari would, even if they knew it was an accident, would still have gone to war with Earth. Maybe not to the genocidal extent. Maybe not to the slaughter all of them extent that they actually did. But definitely to the extent of, we're going to war with you because your mistake killed one of our honored and revered leaders, Dukat. They mention him. Um... Hopefully he's not gold to cut. No, I'm sorry. Old joke, old joke. But seriously, I uh, I, I could just picture that as, as the Membari mindset, which of course brings me to Membari politics. Now, this is going to sound weird, but I feel like Membari politics are analogous to Klingon politics. Bear with me. In both cultures, uh, they are willing to go to severe violence and, and uh, extreme extents, you know, the, the cranking up to 11 thing, over things that are completely intangible. Now, you might say, well, how's that different from any other politics? Politics itself is literally just the interaction between different people, right? I mean, we all understand that. And so, just because when we say something is political, usually people think of things like territories, borders, war, money, etc. Because those are things that are usually political here on Earth. But I like the Klingon and the Mimbari culture as they are fleshed out both, because for them it's almost none of those things but it's still political. It's political about intangible concepts like honor or duty or sacrifice or which caste you belong to or the way of things or, you know, uh, the concept of the seeker thing I mentioned earlier. You know, the idea that that kind of a thing is revered amongst the Membari and therefore would be willing to fight and die and kill over is something that's relevant. We see in this episode the, uh, the fact that the castes 
despite their disagreements with each other, do agree on that overall concept, that he is to be honored and venerated as a great leader. And in fact, the only conflict, the conflict that comes up in this episode is they are in disagreement of how to venerate Amun the leader, which of course, it sounds very political, doesn't it? Group A thinks B, or group A thinks one, Group B thinks one, so they can't possibly disagree. They, they, so they just constantly disagree on how best to proceed on one. I mean, that, doesn't that just sound like a dozen political or democratic or whatever organizations you can think of right off the top of your head? I can actually relate that just to the office space. For how many times you get in there in corporate America and you get into a meeting, it's like, okay, we all agree on this, but then everyone starts arguing about it, and you know how it is. Heck, I've seen that on my stream, for God's sakes. We all are like, yeah, we all agree on this, but we must argue and fight over it because we disagree on how to present it. It's very uh, human, for lack of a better word, and that is ultimately what politics really is. Again, the interaction, the intangible interaction between uh, between individuals, between groups, between organizations, and whatnot, and I love the way that's shown. Um, I, uh, I thought about putting this in a spoiler box, but I decided not to. All I'm going to say is, in four episodes, there's an episode called Chrysalis. And they lay the seeds for that here. All I'm bringing it up for is because it's awesome. I mean, Babylon 5 has been, it lays... Uh, lays foundation for future plot lines way in advance. We've seen stuff episodes ago that won't come up for a couple seasons, or a season. Uh, I'm not kidding about that. So it's, it's just the Babylon 5 style, but I found it interesting because I never really noticed before... Uh, well, I, okay, that's a lie. I never It never really clicked with me as much as it did this time uh, what Delenn was doing in this episode. It's a nice touch to, to have that in the background. Don't draw attention to it. You know, there's no need for that. It's just something Delan is working with in the background in this episode to lead into the episode four episodes from now. That's a nice touch. Uh, and it's kind of like how I like to do that kind of a foreshadowing. Again, foreshadowing doesn't have to be major plot elements. It could just be something in the background that leads into something in the future. And having connecting threads between episodes also helps flesh that out. This episode is another good example of that, by the way. The the down below thing tying in, the telepaths thing tying in, the psychor tying in, of course, and naturally the war just tying in all over the place. Um, last thing I want to talk about before I cut this off is Narun himself. As I said, Narun will be a recurring character, but one of the things I like about him is, like most characters in this show, he is multidimensional. Even in this episode, the first episode where we see him, we can tell that he is not just a obstinate military uh, jarhead kind of a, a stereotype. There's certainly a lot of that there. There's certainly a lot of hot-headedness within him and arrogance within him. But the moment he allows that to bleed out a little bit, we get to see a little bit more of the person underneath that. And we do get to see some shadings to him. It's only just begun, but of course it has. This is our first time seeing him. And I like that they're bothering to put that in at all, rather than uh, not trying to. Unfortunately, I don't have anything else to say. I'm really sorry, guys, about the short episode. Again, great episode. I don't have much to discuss. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, as I always do. And I will see you next week. Cool.